you can turn back to Genesis 21, where we'll pick up our study of Abraham. Genesis chapter 21. Abraham is set before us in the scriptures as, as the prime premium example of a man of faith. He's used throughout the Bible as an example of, of, of the faith. He's called the father of, of the faith and we're children of Abraham. And so what we see in Abraham is, the one, is a man who, though he was flawed, who walked by faith, whom God holds up before us to, to duplicate, to imitate, to learn from his example. But we find as we come to chapter 21, the fulfillment of a promise where the father of the faith is actually going to become an earthly father. And we celebrate Father's Day today, do we not? And God's going to fulfill his promise made to Abraham and Sarah uh, to bring them their child Isaac today. And yet we're told throughout Scripture that because of this fulfilled promise administered through people who were willing to trust the Lord for the promise he made, that a nation was born, a people's for generation, a nation what was to, which, which were a people that were special to God, a people that were to be a light for God, and a people that were the apple of his eye. All because they trusted him by faith. Not without their trials, not without their difficulties, not without their challenges. And so we also see, if you, if you would continue the story in Isaac, another man of God, another man who was trained by his father. And I think fathers this morning, though we're not going to have a specific Father's Day message, I think the, the person of Abraham becomes a tremendous example to us as fathers in one of the most important aspects of our life, and that is how we live out our faith. Do we live by faith? Because much of what our children learn are learned by our example and our presence and our leading and guidance and walking by faith. And we live in challenging times. We have our work cut out for us. There is a world that is hostile and increasingly hostile towards Christian and its, and its witness. It's the world which is challenging all of God's precious institutions, redefining the very creation that God created. And we have a challenge to train our children to know and love the Lord and to walk by faith. And that's why this is so critical, to equip us to be effective fathers. I read recently a, a, a short news blurb. It was on a Fox News website, actually, quoting an article from Greg Laurie, who pointed out this, and I just thought I would share this briefly this morning. And this is a quote. In, in an article from the Heritage Foundation published in 2018, after the Parkland, Florida shooting, there was this observation among the 25 most cited school shooters since Columbine, 75% were reared in broken homes. Staggering, isn't it? Not surprising, maybe, but staggering. And the article goes on to give many statistics that follow along that line, but it ended with this uh, startling one where he says this, 80% of all sitting in prison today grew up in a fatherless home. And so the American experiment of fatherless homes is failing, isn't it? But I think just as well, as we look around Christianity today, there are fathers, Christian fathers who are present, but maybe they're absent from the spiritual training and rearing of their children. As we see more and more young people departing from the faith, and thus we have our example cut out for us as fathers to leave a legacy of faith, to be considered a person of faith. Someone has stated, I think it's in the same article, that if you want to see how effective one was as a parent, don't look at their children, but at their grandchildren. Let's see if we've trained our children to be reproducing disciples, in essence. 
Well, here in, in this ch chapter 21 of Genesis, we find here two critical aspects of the life of faith. We find two related dynamics here in, rea in reality. We find the faithfulness of God, which is directly related to the faith of Abraham and Sarah. Those things are inseparable, are they not? So let's go ahead and read the first seven verses here of this uh, short but wonderful account. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. The first thing we notice in this passage is God's faithfulness. It's a simple statement that God had kept his word to a Abraham. Back from the, in the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant, when God promised to make of him a great nation, and after all these years, God's promise was fulfilled. And he visited Sarah, as, as, as he had said. And maybe the two key phrases for us here this morning is, first of all, where the Bible says the Lord visited Sarah as he has said, just like he said, as he has said it. God fulfilled his promise. And then he also says at the end of verse 1, as he had spoken. Two phrases that puts the emphasis on the faithfulness of God to keep his word. And that is so important aspect of our faith that we often doubt, isn't it? We often sometimes forget that God always, always keeps his word and his word is always true in every situation. Numbers 23, 19 remind us that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or hath, has he spoken and will he not make it good? And those are, these are good reminders for us to remember the fact that God always keeps his word. He keeps his promises and his warnings, by the way. In every situation, in every circumstance, therefore, then God's word is always right. That's the challenge to our faith. That's the direction of our faith, to recognize that in every situation in life, God's word is always right. And though it is often tested, as it was with Ab Abraham and Sarah, God's word never fails. And that's something we need to learn as we learn the faithfulness of God. That's something Israel learned. Remember Joshua's observation after the campaign to conquer the Holy Land before Joshua left this world? In chapter 21, verses 44 and 45, it says this, The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, that is, rest in the promised land. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. And Joshua recounts this in chapter 23 in this wonderful statement where he says, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and all your souls that that one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. And such, such a tremendous observation and a great reminder to us that God's nev word never fails. And yet when we walk by faith as God's children, we often, sometimes, we, sometimes and sometimes often, depart. 
from that concept. We forget that. We forget how big our God is, how faithful our God is, how right his word is, and we often take things into our own hands, don't we? We fail to pray. We fail to consider God's word, consider his will. We think we've got this handled. We're going to figure it out. We're going to do it our way. I think so many problems in Christianity is that we justify sometimes doing God's work our way instead of doing God's work his way, though it may seem illogical and unreasonable, and trust him with the results. It's also comforting, these observations that Joshua made considering the promise Jesus made concerning the future in Revelation 22, or excuse me, 21.5, when he said, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write these words, they are true and faithful. And we can count on that. We, are, we base our eternal destiny on our, on our hope of the future that God someday is going to make all things new. And the longer we live in this cesspool of earth, we can't wait until all things are made new. Now we know God's faithfulness is related to his immu immutability, isn't it? The fact that God does not change. I want you to see a verse in the book of Malachi. Those who come Wednesday nights know that we've been studying the book of Malachi and there's a verse that just related to this subject this morning, so I wanted to share it with, with all of you. Malachi chapter 3, last book in the Old Testament. So not too hard to find, Malachi chapter 3. And here in Malachi chapter 3, the people are grumbling about the, the rich and the, and the wicked, that they seem to be getting away with everything, and they aren't judged. And this is what God says to them, here at this point of the book at least, in verse 6 where he says to them, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. And he's telling them, You're pointing your fingers at all the wicked and evil, and you forget the fact that you deserve judgment as well. You deserve to be consumed. And what you're hoping for the wicked, on, the, on the ungodly is just as deserved yourself. But he says to them, This is why you're not consumed, because I do not change. I do not change. What God is saying, I'm true to my character. I'm a God of love and mercy and grace, and I promise to extend that mercy to those who will look to him. God God's has a promise to fulfill made way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. 1 through 3, that is, that God's going to make Abraham a great nation, and if he would consume Israel, that promise would become null and void. And God says, I don't change. I'm going to keep my word. In other words, for you and I, this is the point in life where we throw our hands up and say, forget you. I'm done with you. But God says, because I do not change, you are not consumed. Because I'm going to carry out in my plan, in my grace, in my mercy, my will for you as a nation. It reminds you of Lamentations chapter 3, doesn't it? That well-known verse that says, through the, Lord, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the faithfulness here is to the character of God. He's faithful to his own character, and that's how he's faithful to us. And that's why in his mercy we're not consumed, because he is determined to extend grace and mercy to his children. Now God is, was faithful to Sarah, was he not? He accomplished what he said. And we know there's two things to consider when we consider the faithfulness of God, I think, for you and I on a practical level. First of all, this concept we've been looking at, that God keeps his word. As a reminder in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, it says, Therefore, 
Know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have that aspect. We've been talking about God always keeps his word. He never breaks his promises. He's true to his character, and he's going to carry out his plan in spite of us. But also, if you turn to Psalm chapter 19, our scripture reading this morning, I think there's another aspect of our walk of faith, not only knowing that our God is faithful, that we can trust him to keep his word, but I think there's that concept that you want to remember that God's word works is maybe the best way I can put it. God's word delivers its promised result. It's practical. It, it does for us in life what God says it will do. It brings the blessing that's promised and also brings the, maybe the judgments that are warned. God's word works. That's what Psalm 19 is all about. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. We have a perfect Word of God, uncontaminated, the pure Word of God, and it converts, it restores our lives. It restores us. And if we've wandered from God and forgotten about God and ignored God and gone our own way, we get back in the Word. It restores, it refreshes, it lifts us up. The testimony of the Lord is sure, it makes wise the simple. Wisdom comes from the word of God. The commandments of the Lord are pure. They enlightening the eyes. And the idea there is it makes your eyes bright. Like you're full of life. And love life. And what brings fullness of life to our lives? It's God's word. The, co the commandments of the Lord. The word of God brings fullness and meaning and purpose. It enlightens our eyes. In a spiritual sense. The fear of the Lord is clean, endures forever. We need a couple the trueness of God's word with the respect of God in his word and endures but because the, the judgments of the Lord then are true and righteous altogether. And the verse 10 tells us of the number one thing to be desired. More to be desired than making money. That means opening the Bible is more important than going to work Monday morning. That's what that means. More to be desired are they than gold. They much fine gold. More to be desired. Our number one pursuit because only God in his word gives us the wisdom to know how to, how to rightly manage our financial affairs and how to rightly order our financial lives, doesn't he? So that they don't distract us and consume us and keep us from serving Christ or whatever. More to be desired. That's God's priority. That should be our number one hunger, shouldn't they? And then it also says, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Well, and the, then... The days of the psalmist, that was the sweetest thing you could eat, eat was a nice piece of honey. kind of still is, isn't it? And it's sweeter. And so God puts money under a desire for the word of God. He puts food, even the best of food, the most delightful food, under a desire for the word of God. So that means when we start our week, before we eat, before we go to work, we should have a hunger for God's word. That's the same, isn't it? Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb, which means when you try it, it delivers. It brings delight to the soul and to our lives. That's what the Word of God does for us. It delights us. It, it, it strengthens us. It refreshes us. Well, there's a whole other message in that, but it goes on to say, moreover by them was your servant warned. So they're also warn us, and we need that, because we're just like, 
little kids, we have a tendency to wander from our Heavenly Father, and we need warnings about that, don't we? But keeping them, there's great reward. Keeping them. And that's where faith comes in, isn't it? Faith understands that not only does God keep his promises, but that I need to, I need, I need to believe those promises. I need to follow that word. I need to follow the instructions and dynamics of the word of God. The Bible is full of promises of faithfulness. I just thought I would just share a few this morning to remind us of the faithfulness of our Father to deliver. Deliver on his promises and, that, and, and the fact that his word is, is very practical and works in our lives. Psalm 119.75 says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that faithfulness you have afflicted me. And so here's a verse on the faithfulness of God to discipline us and to train us, isn't it? He says, your judgments are right, and, and God, you're training me to keep them. God's faithful to that in our lives, isn't he? I like this one. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so we have this, this promise of God's faithfulness of a sovereign care of our lives. Nothing is going to test us beyond what God has, has prepared us for. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so that phrase we like to sometimes utter in life, I just can't take it anymore, is really a lapse of faith, isn't it? And we need to go back to this promise that God will make a way of escape. He will help us bear it because he's faithful to not to allow anything in, the, in our lives which he may use to train us and to teach us above that we're able. We can trust him with our with the care of our lives, can't we? Along those same lines, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 say this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's our spiritual growth, isn't it? Being set apart to God. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. So here we have sanctification and preservation, and, he, and God is faithful to do both for us. You know, you, you get the message. The faithfulness of God has a lot to do with taking care of us, doesn't it? And providing for us. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says it this way, But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. He is faithful. And that faithfulness started with our Savior as well, didn't it, for us? Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore in all things he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, become a man, that is, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus was faithful to accomplish the work of our salvation, to make propitiation a satisfactory sacrifice on the basis of which God could forgive us. Jesus was faithful. Faithfulness includes our restoration. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. And that's not a salvation verse. This is a verse of restoration to fellowship or relationship. When we come clean before God, he forgives and cleanses and forgets, by the way. So we don't need to remember. That's, he's faithful to that. And there's times in our lives we think, boy, I don't deserve it. We relive and relive and relive our failures. And we just need to go back to the fact that God's faithful. He said he's going to forgive and cleanse. Believe him. That's our faith resting on his faithfulness. Well, going back to Genesis chapter 21, another aspect 
of the faithfulness of God, the obvious here is he's not, God is not limited by impossibilities. And I think we especially see that here in Sarah in the last couple of verses, in verses 6 and 7, when she says, God has made me laugh. And the name Isaac means he laughs. It means laughter. Maybe some of your Bibles point that out. And it says, God has made me laugh, and all who are here with me will laugh with me. Now, we saw Sarah laugh once before in Genesis 18, and that seemed to be a laughter of skepticism because God corrected her for that skepticism. But here, and he reminded her then, is anything too hard for the Lord? But here, this laughter is one of thankfulness and amazement, like, wow, you got to be kidding me. You know, maybe 90 years old. And so she's laughing in, uh, out of joy and pleasure and amazement and thankfulness that one who was well beyond childbearing years could bear a child and could nurse children. And we know this fulfillment of this promise, this specific promise that they were going to be parents of a great nation. The timing of it was deliberate, isn't it? This is, this is deliberate by God. He deliberately waited. It's pretty obvious. Romans 4.17 says this, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And now that falls in the passage of the faith of Abraham. He calls things, he calls things which do not exist as though they did. And this was deliberate so you and I could learn that God is not limited by our apparent, seemingly, impossibilities. He's not limited. He keeps his promise. Even when things seem completely out of control and impossible. You see, God doesn't, you know, when it comes to the keeping of his promises, doesn't usually consult us as to how, why, or when. Does he? You know, Abraham and Sarah tried to help God with the how, why, and when along the way, and that did not work out so well. But God doesn't consult us because he has a perfect plan, a deliberate plan. Lessons to teach and timings, and God's timing is perfect. He is never late. And yet it's those how, why, and when questions that often challenge our faith, isn't it? They're the ones that we get all shook up about. But when we, we choose to wait on the Lord, as we're told, and that's an aspect of faith, and let God to take care of the how, why, and the when, we can rest. We can trust him and find rest by faith in his faithfulness. So take care of the how, whys, and whens. And then we can have joy in spite of our circumstances instead of despair because of our circumstances. We're willing to wait on him. And so God's faithfulness makes him trustworthy, doesn't it? And it's really the persuasion of our faith. The greater, more we get to know our God, the more we see that not one word fails, that God's word works, it delivers the desired result, that it's sweet, it's desirable, it's refreshing. Our faith is persuaded, it's strengthened. And these two were people of faith because they kept it simple. Now they had their blunders along the way, we know that, but they kept it simple. They just chose to believe God. And going back to here, excuse me, Genesis chapter 21, when we consider Sarah up to this point, it might cause some to question her faith, her skepticism, the whole event with Hagar, 
But if you turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, Sarah is mentioned here, and it brings some clarification if that's a question. You know, was Abraham the one of faith and Sarah just taken along? But look at Hebrews chapter 11, this section on Abraham and Sarah. Just a couple of verses of verse 11, chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore, which is God's promise concerning Israel. By faith. Maybe the key phrase is, here is for Sarah, God recalled her a person of faith. Use her in the Hall of Fame of Faith for an example for you and I. And the key phrase is, in verse 11, she judged him faithful who had promised. She judged him faithful. It was simple. She judged him faithful. Yes, God used Sarah. He uses imperfect people, even those who have lapses of faith. But, you know, you consider Sarah, she, she has some interesting circumstances. She's married to her brother, her half-brother, which was acceptable in those times. And then she followed Abram on a long journey to somewhere, the promised land, didn't know when the journey was going to end, stopped for a while in Haran, and that she followed him there. Twice she had an opportunity to live in a palace. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, wanted her for a wife, and she spent some time in the palace. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, later on wanted her for a wife. She spent time in that palace, but both times she returned to live in a tent rather than stay in the palace because she judged him faithful who had promised. She lived childless, well beyond childbearing years, and then ended up delivering at, we believe, around 90 and nursing Isaac, changing diapers and chasing a toddler around at 90 to 100 years old. No wonder she laughed, an incredulous laugh. And she said, you laugh with me. But that's how God works. He works in amazing ways. And sometimes we, we tend to criticize people instead of laughing with people when we see the wonder of God's power at work when we're willing to trust him. And it's not that we can call out and demand that God's power be worked out according to our schedule and to fulfill our plans, but when we trust him, he can do amazing things. I think so often we, we sell God short, do we not? We don't really pray and expect God to be consistent with his character, to keep his promises, to bless a work if it's the work of God, to provide for it and to bless it in an almighty way. She judged him faithful. And so Sarah becomes an example of faith based upon the faithfulness of God. Stumbles along the way, but underneath it all, God put her in the hall of fame of faith because she judged him faithful. Concerning Abraham, let's go to Romans chapter 4. Concerning his faith, let's go over to Romans chapter 4. We're here, this entire chapter uses Abraham as an example of faith. We're going to pick it up in the middle of the chapter and we're going to learn here a few dynamics concerning faith in this lesson on Abraham. Verse 13 says, but the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The law represents self-effort and self-works. Instead, it comes through faith alone. That's how Abraham inherited the promise. Nothing he did. In fact, God made sure it was absolutely nothing he did because his body was as good as dead, as Hebrews told us. Reproductively, that is. And so it was not of his own effort. It's something that God just did 
before him that Abraham enjoyed by faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and promise made of no effect. Now that's the argument of the chapter, but let's go on. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is, law, there is no law, there is, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And verse 16 kind of sets forth a principle that supports this, this dialogue, which is an argument of salvation by faith alone apart from works. And, it, and verse 16 gives us an important dynamic, that faith, grace, and assurance go together. God in his grace provides what we need. In this case, he provided Isaac, according to his promise, in an impossible situation. Faith is the hand that takes hold of that promise and believes the promise and rests in that promise, and the result is assurance. And we'll see that assurance concerning Abraham in the following verses, verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did who contrary to hope and hope believed, so that he may become come, or became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. Tremendous example of a man who kept it simple, who simply trusted God in spite of the circumstances. Here in verse 17, we, we see this, and we mentioned this verse before, that the faith that we're to walk in is a faith that expects to God to keep his word no matter what the obstacles. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always been encouraged to read stories of, of missionaries who have faced insurmountable obstacles in their work. Christians who are persecuted, who overcome because God keeps his promises and watches over his people. Faith expects God to keep his word because he does not change no matter what the obstacle. We so often lower our target, lessen our expectation because we see obstacles around us instead of just waiting on God to see how he will work in those situations. Verse 18 through 20 reminds us that faith does not waver in the face of those impossibilities and uncertainties. He said he didn't waver. His faith did not waver, we're told here. Verse 18, who contrary to hope believed in hope. Contrary, absolutely contrary. Abraham could have easily said, well, God, maybe you meant something other than what you said. I'm just going to go wander away and forget it all. Because it was completely contrary to nature. Yet he believed. Verse 19, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body. He didn't consider. Because he knew that wasn't an obstacle to God. He may not have known how or when or why God was going to, or where, excuse me, God was going to fulfill the promise, but he did not consider. And that's what we really need, isn't it, as Christians? We need to have our eyes fixed and focused on our Savior and his promises and not consider the natural realm. We worry about so many things. We worry about our budgets. We worry about, we worry about our jobs or our farms, our animals, our crops. 
our itsy bitsies, our relationships. When God says, just trust me. Just seek me first. And trust me. That's what Abraham did. He didn't consider the natural limitations. And then he didn't, therefore, verse 20, he did not waver in the face of those things through unbelief. And so here the Bible acknowledges the fact that wavering from the promise of God, turning to walking by sight rather than walking by faith, walking in self-dependence rather than working on God walking in God-dependence is unbelief. But instead, his desire to trust the promise of God strengthened him in faith. Isn't that interesting? As the years went by, his faith got stronger because it became more and more impossible. Yet he knew God was going to keep the promise. And that's the kind of faith God would develop in us. Because he was fully convinced that what he had promised, he's able to perform. That was the key. There's another key phrase for us. What he had promised, he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he is able to perform. We have a great God. You can see behind these verses isn't people of great faith. They were strengthened in faith because they just trusted in a great God. They knew their God. They believed his promise. They did not waver in the face of those impossibilities or uncertainties. And faith is just that, being fully convinced that God is able to keep his word. And we're told in the Bible that faith is how we are are to operate. The just shall live by faith. It is how we are to live our lives every day. Living it represents, living by faith indicates everyday life we live in a dependent trust upon our God. One, one of the reasons we do that, and I think God has to teach us one of, the, one of the reasons we do that, is because of our own weakness and inability. The impossibility of navigating life on our own. And the Bible tells us that, such as in John 15, 5, when Jesus says, without me you can do nothing. That whole passage on abiding in him. And we don't always get it when we're, when we're new Christians, young Christians, and sometimes older Christians. Absolutely nothing can we do right because the flesh always takes us in the wrong direction. Without me, we can do nothing. But the good news on the flip side of that is when we abide in him, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, not that we're sufficient of ourselves or think anything of us as of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. And that's the good news of faith. The bad news is we have lessons to learn that we're weak in the flesh. The good news is that with him, we can do all things. He is our sufficiency. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8 remind us this, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so we have to walk by faith because we do not have it within ourselves, either to come to know God, to walk with God, or to please God. We need his help. We need his wisdom. We need his power. We need his word. And so with this faith is necessary because of our own weakness and inabilities, but it's also simply God's plan for us. And it starts with salvation, doesn't it? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. You see, it starts with salvation. We know that we cannot, we don't have the ability to take care of the problem of sin. And that's the issue in salvation, isn't it? It's sin. Sin has separated us from God. That's the problem that we had, but the solution was provided by Jesus on the cross, wasn't it? When he offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And so God identifies the problem that we're incapable. Isaiah 64, 6 says, even 
the best we can do were as filthy rags in his sight. But God offered the solution to that problem in the person of Christ, and then he offers the forgiveness and assurance of heaven freely as a gift. And the only way to respond to that gift is by faith. That's the, ch that's the challenge of salvation. Will we trust Jesus as our sin bearer? Because we have a problem. It's called sin. We need a savior. We need cleansing. We need forgiveness. And Jesus provides that if we would trust him by faith. And that's why the word believe is so predominant in the New Testament. We need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we shall be saved. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The issue is trusting Christ. And that's why we must be sure when we present the gospel to keep the means of reception clear because we've confused it as a, as a Christian community these days. Salvation is not by giving God anything. We're sinners. We have nothing to offer God. Salvation is a gift received, not a reward earned. We have nothing to give God. Salvation is not by inviting him into our hearts or lives. It's a matter of do we trust Jesus as our Savior? Now, some of these things are true for the Christian. After we're saved, we can act like a Christian. You have to become one before you can live like one. And God does come into our heart. We are to commit ourselves to God and give ourselves to God. We are to enjoy relationship with him, but those are the result, not the means. Don't get the cart before the horse. First, this issue has to be settled. Where is our trust? Is it in something we've done or something we've committed, something we've we promised? Or is it in the Lord Jesus Christ, the concept of faith? And I think that's the real message of Romans 4 as well as Galatians is to keep it clear. The issue is our sin. The solution is Jesus Christ. The way we appropriate that is by faith. And so we go back to Reformation. That faith is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's the, that's the issue. We must keep that clear, isn't it? And so when for, for the lost to approach God, we must come to him with, with nothing. We come just as we are, with nothing to offer, but our trust in the Lord Jesus as our Savior. But for believers, then, we are to go on to live by faith. We trust Christ by faith. We are then to live by faith. And Hebrews 11.6 tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And that's another reminder. It's impossible for us to please God apart from faith. We've seen that in Abraham and Sarah. When they took steps to help you know, answer the air problem with Hagar, it was the wrong thing to do. When they took steps to try to preserve their lives by lying about Sarah being mar married to Ab Abraham, it was the wrong thing to do. They were well-intentioned, good steps, but they weren't steps of faith. They weren't steps of obedience. And, and, it, and it could about destroyed them as it does us. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. God designed us to be dependent creatures, didn't he? And that's a delightful thing, because in him we find all that we need for life and godliness. We find blessings in Christ. We find power, comfort, wisdom. And that's a good thing. And so we have to get in the word of God so that we might learn those things he's provided for us, discover the riches he has for us, the promises he's given us, the guidance he's, he's directed us, as we rely upon him. For we must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We must believe that he is. He is the God he says he is, one who does not change and keeps his word. And he's a rewarder then. 
of those that seek him. There's great reward, as Psalm said. Same concept, isn't it, in seeking him. And that's what faith does. Romans 14, 23 says this, in the context of Christian liberty, Christian freedom, that whatever is not of faith is sin. So in those decisions we make in life that aren't directly black and white in the scriptures as we live our daily lives, you might want to call it the establishments of our convictions and the direction of our decisions. They're to be done by faith, even in those things. We're to say, Lord, like Paul did in Acts chapter 9, verse 6, Lord, what would you have me to do? should be the constant prayer on our lips as we look to him for wisdom and direction in our lives. We're to live by faith. And that faith needs to grow, doesn't it? Abraham was strengthened in faith. We see Abraham and Sarah throughout their experience becoming stronger in faith. And the Bible tells us this in Romans 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Pretty simple, isn't it? So we get in the word. Because that's how God reveals himself to us, so we know a God who does not change. That's how he reveals his promises to us. And when we're willing to taste and see the Lord is good, we find out that his word works and God keeps his promise and we can rest in his care. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I also believe that it's not only a general concept of growth, but I think it is a daily challenge to living. Because if the word of God is not fresh in our lives, if we haven't read it for several days, weeks, or months, and that's besides being here, then we're going to stumble along in our loss of faith because we need to be fed, don't we? We need to have the light of God's word. We need to have something to anchor our faith and to give us direction and, and strength and something to enlighten our eyes and the bounty and beauty of the Christian life into the sharing of the life of Christ, which we live. We live in a crazy world that's always pulling us in the wrong direction. Some of those things seem, I think, moral to Christians, but nevertheless, they are distractions, sometimes debilitating because it causes us to upset our priorities of seeking his, him, his word first, of hungering for his word first. But no matter the craziness in which we live, God's word is sufficient. And I couldn't help but remember this prayer in Habakkuk chapter 3. You're probably familiar with it. If we think we live in a crazy world now, God describes one here where he says, though the fig tree may not blossom, no fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the field yields no food, and their store shelves are empty. Oh, I'm sorry, I, was, I inserted that. <laughs> though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on high hills. The chief musician, and so on. That, in my Bible, is subtitled the prayer of faith. No, no matter. And that's the situation Abraham and Sarah were in. Their, their reproduction of abilities had dried up. And they were supposed to be the parents of great nations. They never saw the promise fulfilled. They lived in a tent. They didn't even get to the palace stage. But they did get to see the fulfillment of, the, of Isaac, did they not? As God kept his promise... And it is those, that example that God sets before us this morning. And I think maybe there are four phrases that jumped out at me as we considered this passage this morning. 
The first two come from Genesis 21, where, he said, where God said, as he had said. He, Isaac was born just as he had said. And then at the end of verse 1, as he had spoken. Good things to remember. God kept his word. As he had said and as he had spoken, it came to pass. In Hebrews 11, concerning Sarah, she judged him faithful. She judged him faithful. Abraham, in Romans 4, he was fully persuaded. Those are all expressions of faith. The first two of God's faithfulness, which becomes the strength of our faith as we judge God's faithful and become fully promised that God keeps his promise, promises as he directs our lives. Let's pray. Father, you are an almighty God. We are so thankful that you do not change. Your character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes, you are holy and you will judge sin. You, someday you will judge this world, but you're also a God of mercy and of truth, of grace, of kindness. And, so, so when we're, <clears throat> and we're so thankful for that. Thankful that we can rely upon the forgiveness that we have in Christ, the standing we have and the promise you've made to us because you do not change, of life eternal and looking forward to seeing all things be made new. But we're thankful as well that you keep your promises to us in our daily lives. That, Father, when the circumstances of life shake, want to shake our faith, want to rattle the cage of our faith, want to threaten us, Father, may we be strengthened in faith. To recognize you keep your promises to us and you are a God we can trust in. Thank you for these, this example that you set before us this morning. May you apply these things to our lives for your glory now we pray in Jesus' name.